Hey, it's the FinTech Newscast. My name's John, and with me is a guy who doesn't mind how much he loses in the markets these days. How are you doing, Steve? I'm I'm made of money, John. I do not. I just I just don't care. T- take it all. Take it all. Who needs it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Apparently, uh, based on the way you invest, it looks like that's the attitude. That, yeah, that seems to be the attitude. Yeah. <laughs> Fortunately, we're with a guy who has made some really uh, good investments as far as his career and uh, some interesting companies. We're lucky to have John Lunn, the CEO of Gravy. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. All right. So Gravy is in the payment space, uh, cloud-native payments orchestration and infrastructure. Uh, What does that mean exactly? So we're a layer that sits between um, merchants or retailers around the world selling and pretty much every payment type out there. So what we what we built is this sort of tooling or infrastructure that allows a retailer to really control all of its payments options, um, how it routes payments, where it sends payments all over the world without essentially needing an army of engineers. You do all the hard work of the technical <laughs> side in between then. Yeah, so think of us a bit like a sort of a Twilio of payments or an Airtable of payments. So we're, we're kind of the layer in the middle that allows this whole um, complicated payments infrastructure to be run without needing engineers to, to change things and put things on uh, roadmaps all the time and really have someone who's a payments expert sit there, configure and run the payment system on a day-to-day basis. So then who are your clients? Our clients are generally large um, or medium to large size merchants or people selling online. Um, generally, like our largest client is, is the Woolworths Group in Australia and New Zealand, who are, I think, eighth largest retailer in the world and, and essentially the Walmart of the region. And we have uh, many clients in that sort of size. So the, the big enterprise merchants selling um, around the world are kind of where we specialize. Uh, it seems like a, it's been boom times for payments companies, except for just recently. <laughs> so with the uh, collapse of SVP and uh, kind of some doubts and uh, scrutiny around fintechs of, of all kinds, has that uh, affected you guys at all? Not really. I mean, I think that we're, we're, our job is to simplify something complicated, right? And uncertainty uh, are always demands simplicity, right? So I think... The boom in payments that's happened over the last few years has basically meant a whole load of new payment types have appeared, things like, you know, buy now, pay later and real-time payments in Europe and in Australia and coming to the US at some stage and and other, you know, weird and wonderful wallets, et cetera. And really all of these things hitting at the same time has, has made life very, very complicated for a retailer. So how do they go out and offer payment types to you know, that will allow them to attract new clients. And if you look at, you know, Gen Z, right, credit cards aren't even listed in their top six ways they like to pay online. And if you're a traditional retailer and all you're offering is cards, then you're limiting your audience. So we we step in to simplify that process and make it very easy to add those new payment types. But now the world has changed somewhat. There there is even more need to move quickly. So, you know, as as consumers perhaps be a bit more careful with their spending, maybe they don't want to put everything on the credit card. Maybe they're hitting their credit limit. Maybe now they're looking at other ways to finance what they're buying or deal with. And merchants need to move with that market. So is it tougher uh, these days to kind of like make the case uh, when you're going to a merchant, they see 
maybe different offerings from uh, Amazon, uh, who's going towards retailers, uh, Apple Pay, uh, JP Morgan certainly has a, a huge uh, payments infrastructure. Do, do you think they're, they're going to go towards more uh, well-known names or are you just uh, backlogged with so much demand at this point? So as far as it, if, as far as we work, because we don't touch the money, we're like the integration list. So this allows one of those retailers to try all of those things without needing to like take eight engineers and put them on on this for three months. So you know we've had loads of conversations with retailers saying like I'd love to try cryptocurrency, but guess what? I'm not going to invest engineering time right now in that. Or you know I really want to do buy now pay later, but it's going to take me a year and a half. So we have those kind of conversations and by adding gravy into that, that means every new payment type you're going to add now and in the future will be literally a five minute bit of configuration rather than an eight month integration roadmap. So it really changes you know, how quickly merchants can operate, but it also means you don't need to spend all that money and all that resource on the engineering to get these things done. And I think in these times, particularly where you know, layoffs are occurring, people are being much more careful about decisions and how they spend. Having a tool that allows you to make change and move with the times without huge financial investment makes a, makes a huge difference. So how's it been uh, going with the layoffs in, in uh, tech? As a, have you seen that as an opportunity to uh, attract some talent that would be more expensive or tougher otherwise? So we we're, we we started during COVID. So we're, we're, we started. Uh, I started this company sitting on a in a sofa in an apartment in Vancouver, right? Because so, I couldn't go out. And uh, I think we started the company while everyone was working from home. And the longer we went on, we the more we realized, you know what? We don't need to work from an office. We're not. We're not going to do that. We're going to be a one hundred percent remote company. But that also gave us this huge opportunity to hire anywhere in the world. So we have engineers and, and people in Argentina, Taiwan, Australia, all over Europe, um, North America, et cetera. And our team is very diverse and very, very spread out around the world. And that means that, you know, we had already a beautiful opportunity to hire the, you know, kind of the best engineer in Floriopolis in Brazil, like because no one else is recruiting in Brazil, but it doesn't matter to us where these people are based. So during, you know, layoffs for us, really, we've we've stuck to our guns. We've stuck to um, hiring the best people where they want to be and where they want to work. I know it's a little unfashionable at the moment. Everybody's trying to move people back in the office, but it really works for us to be remote. Right. So is that, um, do, do you see that, um, are you getting a sort of, any sort of pushback from, from say your investors who say that, you know, it seems like the VC community is much more invested in having folks come back to the office than actual CEOs and the operators. So is that a conflict that you have to, to, to resolve or, or have you completely gone just all fully remote or at least regionally um, and, and no, no plans to go in person? Yeah. Yeah. So fully, fully remote, remote and uh, no pressure from investors to change it because it's working and it really does work. I mean, it's funny, like we, we can code 24-7 because our developers are all over the place. Um, you know, we can serve merchants in all parts of the world because we have people in you know, pretty much every region. It's For us, it allows us to grow much quicker in, a, in an economical way and actually hire incredible talent um, in places that, that it, you know, that incredible talent wants to leave, uh, wants to stay and doesn't really necessarily want to move to a financial center somewhere. Interesting. Um, going back to a, a point that you made, you made earlier, you mentioned that there's, uh, and I think I see this now as, as a consumer, right? There's so many ways for me to do payments now, whether it be, you know, I, I can do Apple Pay, I can Venmo folks, I can use my credit card, cash, checks, whatever. Um, what are the kind of trends that you're seeing in the consumer payment space? And 
do you think that we'll get to a point where change will be less accelerated? It, it seems like there, there's a new change or a new way to pay every couple of years now, but I wonder whether there, there will be sort of a, a, a more stable, not an endpoint, but a more stable way in which we can all do payments. No, I mean, look, for me, I think money makes the world go round, right? And, and, and I think more efficient ways to pay, ways that fit into your lifestyle, incentivized ways to pay will continuously be reinvented through time. I mean, if you look at how, how the movement of money has changed over time from shells to sort of checks to credit cards to now, like it's just accelerated and accelerated over the last, you know, hundreds of years until we're in this speed now. But I don't think that really changes. I mean, the truth behind it, no one enjoys the bit where you pay for something at the end of it. Like it's, it's the one big transaction no one looks forward to doing. So the more frictionless and seamless we can make that, plus, uh, you know, giving you a reason to do it. And I think like for us, we look, we see things like open banking, or which is sort of the European version of real-time payments, as a huge opportunity, but also what the hell is in it for the consumer? And, you know, there's a big opportunity for retailers because of cost savings, no chargebacks, et cetera. But for a consumer, why would you do that? Like in Europe, you get sent a debit card when you're 16 years old, like as per standard. There's not really any reason for you to use open banking unless the merchant or the retailer does make a reason for it to happen. And I think the economics of it makes that very possible. And we're seeing lots of interesting experiments around cash back and, and vouchers and you know, the rest of it to actually drive consumer preference towards other payment types by the merchants themselves. Interesting. So looking at your experience, right? So you're, you're, you're obviously from, from the UK, but you also have teams in, and you mentioned um, a client in Australia, teams in Argentina and Taiwan. And I know the US is not the answer here, but who do you think, what geography, geography or regulatory framework has the best payment ecosystem that, that you have come across? It's, it's clearly India. Like I think... Um, India? Yeah. Interestingly enough, you look at the Indian, what, what India's done around you know, the open banking platform they've built over there is fascinating. It's real time, it's fast, it's accessible to everyone. Um, it's kind of a model for how you should all be building real-time payments. So I, I, I've always been, I mean, super impressed by what they've built out there. And it really is... And it's interesting when you see the decline of cards in that market versus the rise in, in, in this, this payment type, which is essentially uh, you know, sponsored by the government, is, is very impressive. I think following Europe's following, Australia is following, but everybody's sort of enviously looking at the Indian um, open banking system and thinking, wow, that, that was done really well. Plus the, the, the skill, right, of having 1.1 billion folks or so. That helps. Which is pretty <laughs> impressive, yeah. 1.4 <laughs> yeah, now. Four, wow, yeah. There you go. New, uh, more, more folks to to take care of. Yeah, interesting. Um, and and also, um, in in terms of of uh, of gravy, um, I know that you know as a as a nascent fintech, although you have some some large clients, um, how are you thinking in terms of how you conduct client client acquisition? Is it a matter of having a great product and they're going on to sell it, or is it just a matter of understanding how things work from a regulatory? perspective from a technical perspective what, what sort of your the way in which you see um the the growth of the company coming from yeah so look we i mean i think payment orchestration is an area which we're part of is here to stay it's it's everyone will be using it in the next two to three years generally orchestration most retailers whether they get it through their psp or through a, a third party such, such as us it's going to be 
something that everyone's doing. I think that's a space where there'll be multiple providers. I would I would expect us to be leading in enterprise and mid-sized retail. Um, and that, that's what we're aiming for. That's what we designed the company for. So we, uh, we, we pride ourselves and you know, kind of the view of, of the market out there is where we, one, we know what we're doing, but two, we work very closely with our clients to help them configure and build the infrastructure that allows them to scale now and in the future. Hmm. And can you help us find what is payment orchestration? Yeah, so think of an orchestra. It's probably like uh, the guy, conductor at the front of the orchestra waving his wand and, and telling, you know, pointing at the, the different parts of, the, uh, of the, the process to do what it needs to do when it needs to do that. That's why it's called orchestration. But generally with payment orchestration, there's different parts of it. It's payment optimization, where not, how do you get the best auth rates? How do you get the highest chance of, of capture? How do you get the cheapest cost? That's kind of optimization. How do you optimize along, uh, along that side? Then there's checkout optimization, which is like, how do you guarantee the majority of your customers get through checkout and actually end up paying for the item that they put in their shopping cart? That's all part of orchestration. Then there's routing, infrastructure, tokenization, vaulting, anti-fraud services. All these are part of your entire payment stack. And orchestration generically is a system that covers off that area. And lots of people will define orchestration as being able to support multiple payment types. That's one part of it. Actually, the whole thing is essentially full orchestration, full stack from beginning to end and being able to manage your payments through a platform. So do you see yourselves as basically having a more consultative approach to tackling some, um, some companies' payment system or more of a checklist? Here's a menu of things that, that you can offer. We are, we're definitely more, more IBM than we are a checklist, right? We, we, are, we have a set of tools that we deploy on behalf of our merchants. And while we're very different from everyone out there is we're essentially a cloud company. We look much more like it's sort of Google Cloud or an AWS than we do a payment company. Because what we do is we sit down with our merchants, we work out where they want to sell, who they're selling to, what is their requirements. And then we spin up infrastructure for them in the cloud, wherever they need it in the world. So we were talking about India before, there's particular requirements in India around payment data. So payment data is not allowed to leave India. We can spin you up instances of gravy in an Indian data center for your Indian customers where your data will never leave the country. That instance of, of gravy in that Indian data center can talk to your instance of gravy that's in your North American data center, but it keeps all your data separately. And the way that we build gravy is this, this infrastructure is sole tenancy. It's only used by you for you. So there's not one gravy. There's thousands of gravies around the world. So we've done this in a very different way. I think um, I don't think we'll ever get to a point where you just click and say, I want seven of those and eight of those, because essentially we're helping build that infrastructure for you and deploying it for you. Um, and we need to know what you need at that stage. Uh, so what's the challenges in, in moving forward? If you could, uh, if I gave you a magic wand and you could get rid of some obstacle in terms of uh, growing your company, what's, economic going, what's the slowdown. part? <laughs> you can take out the economic slowdown. That would be great. Um, <laughs> like, uh, look, I think it, it, it is definitely, I talk to a lot of other, other CEOs around the world. I, I also invest um, and it's definitely got harder to sell over the last six to 10 months. I think um, companies are like kind of taking longer to make decisions. They're thinking hard about those decisions. And there's a number of companies that, you know, are trying to balance cost savings against cost cutting. And I, I think often companies look at those two things in silos, which is frustrating. 
um, when you're when you're talking to someone about saving them X amount of dollars and they don't want to do it because they want to save Y amount of dollars on people, um, you're it, it's just frustrating. And I think overall, um, you know what's going on at the moment means you know, companies just take longer. They make longer decisions. They take less risks, and that you know, means you can't grow as quickly as you would have done a year ago. Or so I don't. It doesn't change things. Most of the people we talk to are like, if they are in that position, they're like, I really love this but I don't want to do it right now and we'll get them later. But I think overall, if you could wave a wand and make the, the global economic slowdown go down, I think that, that would be great. Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of people would want that. <laughs> but you're, you're, pretty, you're pretty new. Uh, you've only been around the past uh, just a few years. Yeah. Uh, so you already have the, the infrastructure, the people and the capital in place. Those aren't limiting factors, huh? No. I mean, so we, You're we, very I'm, lucky then. <laughs> Lucky, yeah, very lucky. We, I mean, our last fundraise was in December uh, 21, so just before the wheels fell off. So um, mm. that was just, I would love to say it was wisdom and, and background. It was just pure, pure, you know, chance that we raised exactly. Nobody can see the future. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's for sure. Just for our fintechs listening out there, what's the, what's the hardest part of the fundraise? I don't know. I mean, fun, fundraising is interesting. Like I spent... Before I started Gravy, I spent, you know, five years being a VC at PayPal Ventures. And uh, I kind of did that deliberately to learn what it was like to sit on the other side of the table, as it were. So, you know, it was sort of always in the back of my mind and knew I was going to go and do another startup. And I wanted to do that with the knowledge of what a VC was looking for and how they were doing, doing it. And I think the fundraising is, you know, it's horribly like dating where you get hundreds and hundreds of rejections, right? And you just have to like stay strong and go through it. And I think, you know, it's hard for people because, you know, most, most of our lives we're not used to being rejected a lot. And, and you do get rejected a lot when you're fundraising and you've just got to not take it personally and move on and, uh, and find the kind that, of that is like dating that really to get you. Sorry. Oh, no, I was saying that it, that is like dating for me. Yes. <laughs> so much rejection, so much rejection. Should be used to it, but by, by, by now, Jen. Um, so you you mentioned PayPal. So I understand that you're part of the the founding team that created PayPal, PayPal Ventures. What was sort of the impetus for creating a venture arm for 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 PayPal? I think overall, look, I before we started Ventures, I was uh, I was running the developer and startup ecosystem for PayPal, Venmo, um, and Braintree, and we were incubating startups as part of that program. And I think we we got quite good at it, so we were, we were incubating startups and helping them be successful. And I think when Dan came in, he's like, "What the hell are you doing? You're helping all these companies, like you know, get out and fundraise and become bigger companies." And and uh, why are you not investing? And so that was the, the first round. It's like, there are all these companies out there that we're helping and we can help. PayPal has the emo, you know, a great source of data, i.e. they knew exactly where the transactions were coming from. So using that data and, and FinTech knowledge, we can make some very smart decisions about who to invest in. Um, and we're, we're in a prime place to do this, do that at the time. And it, 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 uh, it worked very, very well. We could, we could see where things were doing well, PayPal was a big organization. Um, us being able to invest in innovative new technologies also sort of um, inoculated PayPal to a degree. They could sit there and see, okay, this is working, that's not working. This is where we should think about our own investments when it came to product and technology. Interesting. So I, I've had some, some experience with, with, with CVCs and venture, venture arms within large corporate firms. And I'm wondering, how do you balance that 
Or how do you strike a balance between investing in a company because you think they have a bright financial future mm-hmm. versus a company that has a more strategic element to them? What 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 sort of what what rubric do you use to measure the, those two? Well, the first one. So we always set up PayPal uh, ventures with the aim that it had to be financially successful. So it was set up more like a, you know, a non CVCVC. Um, set up so that you know every investment we made, not every investment, but as a fund, we needed to make returns. We needed to look like we were a successful fund. Outside that, uh, I was very keen right at the beginning. Jeremy and I, and I who started this thing, agreed right at the beginning. We will um, we will make sure that we don't guarantee a commercial deal as part of an investment. So often we would make an investment, say, look, if, if you take our money, we'll work on it, but we never attach the two. So I think there are many reasons not to do that. The first one is if you do, um, if you do that and it doesn't work out, you end up with you know, an, an investor on your board that doesn't want to be there and you don't really want to be there. So it's not great for the investor or great for the startup. But also the ones that you don't get involved in, and uh, that doesn't look for them either. It doesn't send a good signal to the market. So we always set up PayPal ventures to first be uh, generate returns and operate as a VC. But as a secondary, if there was something we could work on together uh, with PayPal ventures and, and and PayPal as a company, then we would be the route to help make that happen. So when you think of Gravy's customers, John, uh, it's it seems like um, at a high level, of course, you you would first liaise with a business person. And then of course you have to go to the dev team. But as we know, dev teams are across or uh, all places, it seems like, seems like they're always stretched. Um, mm-hmm. Can you tell me how you're using low code, no code technology to deploy the orchestration that you mentioned earlier? Sure, so I mean, stage one, the, the retailers dev team will integrate to Gravy and it's a very simple integration. Um, so we can be a drop in into checkout. Um, but you can get more complicated if you want to get more complicated. But once we're in, everything after that point is in a no-code environment. So once you've integrated Gravy, to go and add a new payment type, um, the head of payments, for example, will log into Gravy, go into the admin paddle, go to our marketplace, look and say, uh, say we want to launch in Brazil. What are the payment types that are popular in Brazil? Be able to go into the marketplace, click on those. We'll give you the contact details of who to go and get an account from. You go and get an account, you type in your credentials, you press go and you're live. So no engineer needs to touch that process. You want to switch that payment type off, you go into Gravy, press switch off and it's gone. So really it takes away the whole integration layer once you're integrated to Gravy. You don't need to do any more integrations ever again when it comes to payments because Gravy is doing those integrations and essentially they sit within our marketplace. So easy, even John could do it. Anyone could do it. <laughs> or the other John. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, you know, I, I failed Hello World <laughs> basic, so I don't know. It might be tough. Where do you see this market and uh, gravy in the next, I don't know, sometime down the road, like five years from now? Look, I think everyone, as I said before, everyone will be using orchestration. I see us leading enterprise and midsize um, as that's sort of the, the, the supplier of choice in that space. I think the market's going to grow. Um, and I think, I mean, it's the, it's the next evolution of payments when it comes to, to retail. I think it will just become more and more common throughout. So as far as gravy goes, I mean, we want to grow and grow and grow. And uh, the, the aim here is to, is, you know, it is to become that leading enterprise uh, orchestration platform. Yeah. So we'll look forward to buying out Stripe in the next <laughs> few years. And- <laughs> Or or PayPal, wouldn't that be something? <laughs> oh, yeah. Mm. 
So I always like to ask about uh, what are the regulatory hurdles? Uh, you're operating all over the world. Is that one of the uh, obstacles or things you have to master when you're operating in so many different places? Well, the nice thing is we don't touch the money. So I think look, we had a multiple ways to build orchestration. Some people who, who claim they do orchestration also um, do merchant accounts and onboarding and all the rest of it. Having set up PayPal, having set up CyberSource, both those companies, uh, the overhead in you know doing certification, doing regulation, KYB, KYC, all of that stuff is huge. It's a huge amount of people you need. So when setting up Gravy, we said, First thing first, we don't want to do that. So let's work out how to build a payment company without needing to get involved in that part of it. So essentially, we don't touch the money. A merchant comes to us, they bring their own contracts. So they'll go and sign the contract with an Adyen or a Ranger or a Stripe, and then they'll get the credentials off that company and bring them to us. That means the KYB, all of the regulation stuff is handled by their PSP. It's the same if they want to start offering an ideal in Holland, they can go to ideal, they can get themselves an account, they can bring that account to gravy. Because we don't touch the money, essentially we're operating as a as a, essentially a router in this space, we're a software sale. So we don't need to deal with regulations when it comes to financial regulations because we're not handling money. I think the other regulations around, you know, how you tax people and how you employ people, of course, we, we, we go through all of that, just same like anyone else who's hiring remotely. You're avoided a huge hurdle. That was probably a very smart move uh, to keep you guys growing and uh, without having that hassle. Yeah, I really didn't want to do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's uh, very understandable. So uh, are there any um, uh, technologies out there or, or companies that are doing uh, some interesting things in tech or fintech that uh, you think, oh, I'd, I'd like to work with them or, or this would, might change the market a bit? I'm really enjoying the sort of the real-time payment stuff going on at the moment. And I kind of, we've, we've launched it across Europe. We will shortly be launching it across Australia. Uh, and I can't wait for whatever happens with FedNow and, and the systems over in the US. But I think that's 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 exciting. I think not as companies, but generally as technology. I think the ability to move money in real time, bank to bank, uh, is great. I'm looking forward to whoever cracks how to move it bank to bank across borders in real time. That that's, that's an exciting challenge. And I'm looking forward to working with whoever cracks that one. So, um, but it, there's no reason that shouldn't happen. There's no reason we, we that that can't happen long-term and just have real-time movement of money um, using whatever technologies that, that's going to be used out there. Yeah, yeah. We're really big fans of uh, real-time payments here. Uh, but I, I'm only a fan of the real-time receiving <laughs> part of it <laughs> and the sending can just be on paper and take its time that's that's not a big deal uh all right well you're definitely in an interesting space and you've worked in uh fintech and, and payments uh for quite a few years so any advice you would give to uh fintechs or entrepreneurs out there that are just getting started don't go into payments besides uh, that I disagree. Like, I think payments is huge. As I said before, oh, okay. money, money makes the world go round. I think what we're going through at the moment is a blip. I think uh, payments will always be part of, of everything that we do, whether it's where the internet's coming or, or, or uh, you know, AIs are ruling the world. This money is still going to have to move from one place to another. I don't think it's, I don't think it's anywhere near being the most efficient it can be. Um, so absolutely great space to get into a lot of opportunity and, and something that touches every human being on the planet, right? So I think 
go for it. I think the one thing I always say when, I, when I'm talking to people is like, there's a rule about, you know, move fast and break things. Don't do that in fintech because you go to jail. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, we've seen what can happen. <laughs> uh, jail time sometimes. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, yeah, some some good advice. And definitely an interesting space uh, for sure. We've seen uh, so many interesting things. And best of luck to, to Gravy and keep up the good work. That's Gravy GR4VY, by the way, for, for listeners out there. And uh, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Thanks for having me. All right. That's John Lunn, uh, the CEO and founder of Gravy. Please hit subscribe to keep up with the latest in fintech news. And thank you for listening.